Hello there and welcome to The Sound of the Loons, presented by Alina Health Orthopaedics. Callum Williams alongside Kindred D. St. Aubin, as always, in the second segment of the show. We'll be talking all about the forthcoming Generation Adidas Cup, where the best youth teams in the world will be competing against your very own youth team of Minnesota United. Looking forward to hearing from Noel Quinn in the next segment. First, though, Kindred, let's concentrate on the first team, shall we? They suffered their first defeat of the campaign against Seattle Sounders, a very good, well-organised, disciplined Seattle Sounders. What were your takings from the game on, on Saturday? You know, well, we talked with Adrian Heath earlier today, and I kind of felt the same way he did, where you felt like in the first 10, 15 minutes of the match, there was something to be had there for Minnesota United. They came out with a really good energy. It wasn't a matter of matching Seattle's intensity or coming out a little bit flat. It was like you had these opportunities in these moments that you created in the final third and you just didn't capitalize. Seattle's one of those teams, you let them hang around and they're going to finish their chances. And you also had players back in the mix for them, like a Nico Ladero that you know he's going to be itching to get back on the field. He's going to want to impress. I, I thought maybe Minnesota could have capitalized and, and taken advantage of the fact that some of that midfield hadn't played a lot together. You're still inserting Albert Rosnack. You're still, you know, including Joao Paulo, and I probably didn't say his name exactly right. I'll let you, you know, correct me on that one. Excellent. But I kind of felt like, okay, the chemistry is maybe not right there. Christian Roldan, you know, he he normally plays a different role when Lodero's not around. And so uh, I just felt like Minnesota had their chances in the first 10, 15 minutes, didn't capitalize on them. The energy was good. It was back and forth. It was a frenetic, crazy game, but not a frenetic and a disorganized way, just kind of in a fun back and forth way. And Seattle, just another wonder strike by Joao Paulo and, a, you know, as a second goal that you felt like was unfortunate um, the way the game was going and the own goal situation there. But Minnesota United too little too late in the last 20 minutes of the game where all of a sudden there was a sense of urgency and, and they didn't finish some of their chances. Too little too late seems to be the overriding thought process um, with regards to Saturday. At halftime, it was clear a, a change was needed. That's what happened, and Minnesota shifted to a 4-3-3. Josef Rosales came in um, and, and added something I don't think they had in terms of transition in the centre of midfield. They were also able to match up body-to-body against the Sounders. I wonder, is that something that perhaps the staff wish they would have done from the get-go? It's interesting, too, because when we talked to Adrian Heath in the middle of the week and even just matched at minus one about what are you trying to accomplish here and some of what they were training on, you know, training with and working on all week long, it was about getting a numbers-up scenario for Emmanuel Reynoso in the midfield and how can you capitalize on that and how can you utilize that the way that Seattle plays. Instead, it almost was the opposite. And I do think that, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty. And when you look back and say, hey, we should have started with this four three three and had uh, a body-for-body body situation in the midfield, but maybe you were feeling like, well, maybe if we can get us on the numbers up side of things in the midfield, it could work in the advantage of Amanda Reynoso, and it just didn't happen. And when you go back and watch it, and you could see it live as well, the amount of players that they were throwing forward and the versatility and the movement of all of Seattle really – outside of their back four, and, and we could include, to be honest, Alex Roldan in that in that situation because the amount of times he gets forward, it allowed Christian Roldan to tuck inside and be an extra body. You could see the pinging of the ball, the switching of the fields, the ball dropped on a dime. So um, I think that they 
they can go back and look and go, oh man, we should have done this from the get-go. But at the same time, you just, you don't always know what the game is going to bring you until it happens. And and they made a, an effective change at halftime. And I think that again, just too little too late from an offensive standpoint for Minnesota United, because for the most part, the defense held firm with the numbers that were being thrown forward um, by the Seattle Sounders. We've got to talk. You mentioned it briefly. That goal from Joao Paulo was Sublime. He, he seems to save his best goals for when he plays against Minnesota United. Yeah, his best goals, I think, of his career. Right. I mean, his highlight <laughs> tape, if you probably YouTube him, it's going to be, you know, his goals against this club for some reason. And when you think about, okay, I want to study someone that's a late-arriving midfielder, you know, that can strike the ball and be dangerous – you, you know, you might want to study him because for some reason he finds a way to do it. And it was interesting that midweek he, you know, he was asked by some of the Seattle uh, media, what are you going to do to get your offense going? Cause they weren't scoring goals. And he said, well, I'm just going to keep giving them the ball, give them the ball. They are the goal scorers. Well, instead he just took it upon himself to get hmm. them on the board. And, and we could always say, could, could somebody have stepped a little bit tighter, a little bit quicker, a little bit closer. Um, but that is the danger of the late arriving run on top of the box. And he had time and space to strike it beautifully and what a strike it was. And even a goal like that, rather than just scoring any kind of a goal, a goal like that can really set a team on fire with some, some momentum. And that's, that's what he did there. And he's done it to us a couple times now. Set them up perfectly from a confidence point of view for their CONCACAF Champions League semi-final first leg against New York City FC on uh, Wednesday evening. How does one then limit the amount of times somebody like Joao Paulo has the ball at his feet? Because it was clear everything was going through him in the centre of midfield, and then he pops up with a goal as well. Well, and I think the biggest change was the change in the shape and the addition of Rosales in the midfield because it just felt like there, Will Trapp and Hassani Dotson were chasing shadows almost because there was an, always an extra body in there. And oftentimes, Joao Paulo was sitting really deep. So when he was sitting really deep and getting the ball and pinging it, beautiful switch field, finding Jordan Morris, whether Jordan Morris was running onto it or whether he was playing to his feet in that wide position, really spreading Minnesota United out even more so. And then when Minnesota would win the ball and try to transition, Christian Roldan was tucking in so tight that he was clogging it up for Emmanuel Reynoso, creating too many problems for Will Trapp and Asani Dotson to get out on transition. So all you can do in, in moments like that is I, I don't mind as much giving Joao Paulo the ball when he's sitting at the at the halfway stripe and pinging it side to side. It's not ideal. But I think as he moves farther up the pitch and he's creating more problems from an attacking perspective, that's when you worry. And those late arriving runs on top of the 18 without an extra body in there, Will Trapp, Hassani Dotson looked like they were struggling to keep track of the players that were coming in and out the middle of the pitch um, for Seattle Sounders because of a lack of numbers. And it's just one of those things that until you make the change in the shape, I don't think you're going to effectively going to be able to shut down what Joao Paulo was doing and his ability from an attacking perspective for the whole group, everybody going forward. But he was definitely the playmaker, which is interesting because he's not the guy we peg as a, as a quote-unquote number 10. But if you look back to the last two, three seasons, I mean, when Ladero's been out injured, he has been the, the stalwart central midfielder from a defensive and an offensive standpoint. That's really kind of been the glue that's kept that group together in a consistent standpoint. And um, he did it again against Minnesota United. I'll say it. I thought Emmanuel Reynoso was poor. Um, I know he scored, but I thought his performance was not at the level that many expect here in the Twin Cities. Was that because he was marked out of the game? Because he was kept away from the ball? 
or is it just a poor run of form at the moment? I think it's just a poor run of form because every good number 10 on every team is dealing with the same issues. And I'm not saying you can't have a bad game. You can't have an off game. You can't have a team that has a, a, a tremendous game plan to try to take your number 10 out. But they need to have enough good moments, even within that game, to be the difference. And I don't even think he was dangerous enough that then he was drawing defenders for Seattle Sounders out of position for someone else to step up and fill that void. It's the loss of possession. He's got the ball at his feet. He's losing it. He's turning it over. His passes aren't effective. He's trying to do too much, maybe too many touches. Just he needs that simple play of shielding, holding, one touch, whatever it is, finding this space out wide, I don't care. I think that it's just a poor run of form right now. And I, I, I would hope that he would tell you the same thing, that it's not good enough mm. from himself because his standard is so high. I don't know if he would, but I, I think that he should. And I think that the great players, that is what they do. They take responsibility upon themselves first and foremost and then figure out where they can get better as a unit and how you can make the team better. And he just wasn't good enough in that game. And, and to be to be fair, I don't think he's been good enough on the season for what we expect of him. Also doesn't help that, in, in my opinion, I think he was marked very, very well and, and, and pushed out of the game by somebody in Joao Paulo, who I think um, is probably the best number six in Major League Soccer now after seeing the first couple of games of the season, but also what he's done over the course of his time with the Sounders. He was wonderful with, with Botafogo in the Brasileiro, but now moving into Major League Soccer, he, he again has proven that he's just... It's like stroking silk, watching play. He is effortless in what he does, and, and I thought he was wonderful. The... The, the point I'm trying to make here, though, now moving forward, is clearly Minnesota had to adapt to get the better of him and several other pieces of the Sounders. Moving into this weekend against Austin FC, what do we expect? Because I think there's every reason to suggest you could go with a 4-3-3. Um, I don't expect that'll happen. I think Adrian will, will remain key, uh, firm, and confident in, in what he often does, which is a 4-2-3-1. But I'm starting to now see a pattern here, Kay, where Minnesota often struggle against teams that play 4-3-3. Austin traditionally play a 4-2-3-1. But I wonder now, is there an opportunity to to move into a 4-3-3? And you have somebody like a, a Josef Rosales or, or a Kerbin Arriaga coming into the centre of midfield with Dotson, Trapp, or whoever is available. And do you remember before when Minnesota went with a 4-3-3? And they had Reynoso and Robin Lourdes in wide positions. And I say wide in, in inverted commas because they were allowed to tuck in with the centre forward ahead of them. I wonder if that's something that we see, maybe not this weekend, but is that something we, we perhaps see at some stage over the course of the next couple of weeks? I think um, I think a big piece of it is whether it's at home or on the road. Sure. I, clearly, we, we can talk about this, and this is stating the obvious, but depending on the opposition and where you think their strengths are, I do think that that gives you that sort of a lineup gives you an opportunity to cover yourself on both sides of the ball because Adrian, he said it again today that defensively he felt like his group has been solid. They've been firm and they haven't even had the same starting four. I don't even know if it's been two games in a row. We're only five games in, but I don't know that we've seen that same back four consistency yet, but yet they've played consistently well together, regardless of who's out there um, with their out, the traditional outside backs being absent. But I do think that if you could have a Hassani Dots and a Will Trap and a, and a Kerben Ariaga out there on the pitch together, that that gives you some flexibility defensively, covering ground, pushing forward, getting in on the attack. You have more options for who's going to make that that run and join in. We've seen this kind of space that Ariaga can cover, kind of motor he has, the long legs, the 
gives you another set piece option. Um, and I think we'd all be fair to say, at least in my opinion, that Robin hasn't, we haven't seen his best game from him yet. We haven't seen the best game from Emmanuel Reynoso yet. Um, we clearly haven't seen the best game yet from Luisa Maria from an attacking perspective. And I'm not saying he's been poor. He's got a couple goals on the season, but I don't think good enough for the standards that you want from your number nine. So would that give you a little bit more fl- flexibility on both sides of the ball to go forward and have players joining on the attack and a comfort level with Robin and Ray and whoever the number nine might be, as well as the midfield trio being able to cover that ground and kind of clog that space up to eliminate the playmaking that usually comes from the center of the pitch. Every team these days has outside backs that bomb forward, and Austin's really no different, especially with Nick Lima on the one side if he if he makes a start. But we're used to adjusting for that now. Minnesota United, their outside backs have been pretty good overall for covering for those kinds of fullbacks making the move forward. So I think that um, I think that is a fair assessment. I just don't know if he'll do it. And can we afford, meaning can the club and Minnesota United afford to always make the change at half or after things aren't going the right way? And, and it, it's a tricky one because you want to be firm in your style and your philosophy, but at the same yes. time you have to be understanding of your strengths and weaknesses at the moment, and ultimately you want to get the win. And it's kind of like what we've talked about with U.S. Men's National Team and Burhalter over the last cycle, right, is you want to be firm in what your style and what you're trying to accomplish in your philosophy, but you have to be understanding and willing to adapt and change with the opposition and the strengths and weaknesses of your current club. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in Austin. Um, I tend to agree with you in the sense that I think it'll remain a 4-2-3-1, but there are in my opinion, arguments to, to switch to a 4-3-3. Now, given how we've seen not every 4-3-3, but certainly in this league, the way that a 4-3-3 tends to be played, it can benefit against a 4-2-3-1. Quick question for you, going back to how good Joao Paulo marked Emmanuel Reynoso and we saw other players tuck in and kind of track him on the pitch. Is Reynoso making it too easy on the opposition to take him out of a game? And if this was a one-off, it was just Seattle and it was just a tremendous number six like Joel Paulo doing that, I, I, I would agree that it's more about the defense than the offense. But we've seen it now almost every game of the season where Reynoso's not quite the Reynoso we're used to seeing. I thought he was poor... Against the, the Sounders, I thought he was almost non-existent away to Red Bulls, and I, I singled that game out because I remember being extremely disappointed with him. I thought it was he, he should have offered a lot more against the Sounders, and, and purely because, especially in the first half, when the Sounders were operating with a singular six, mm-hmm. as we've said, Joao Paulo was, was exceptional, but I kind of expected Reynoso to operate on either side of the number six. And it, even if it is Joao Paulo, it, it doesn't matter. Number 10 there for me should be, as you say, pulling away the six and, and, and give some some sort of space for, for either himself, their, their selves, or, or or the transitional eight through the centre of midfield um, in between the lines. But I also think he should be getting the ball and, and, and carrying the ball a lot better than what he is at the moment. Um, I haven't seen his stats, but I'd be very interested to see how many times he gives the ball away. And it's causing problems right now from a transitional point of view because the opposing team, I think, might have, have not figured him out, but... But I'm certainly saying if you get the ball, when he loses the ball where he does, automatically those wide players, those those uh, wing backs rather, those full backs are pressing high, and all of a sudden 
when the, the turnover is made, it's a problem then because Minnesota have got bodies pressed forward and committed forward and they've got to retreat quickly. I think it's causing the team a bit of a problem right now. And like I said, I expected a lot more from him on Saturday. I thought, as I said, he would be either side of Joao Paulo in that sixth row uh, and picking the ball up and driving towards Seattle Sounders. He just didn't do that. And um, like I said, I haven't seen the I haven't seen the numbers, but there were a couple of games where he gave the ball away a lot more than, than in my opinion, he should. I'm fine with the number 10 losing the ball because they're trying to create stuff. It mm-hmm. insinuates they're trying to create stuff, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But the manner in which he's lost the ball over the course of the last couple of games, um, I think it's poor and... Uh, Quite simply, it needs to be better from somebody like him uh, who was brought into this football club for a reason. And um, it's a big game for him against Austin, I think. Bigger than people realise. And we'll wait and see. But it needs to be better, in my opinion. We'll wait and see. All right, we'll uh, refocus then, shall we, after the break. Uh, Coming up is Noel Quinn, who will be taking the Minnesota United Academy into the GA Cup after the break. injury takes you out of the game it's time for your team to step up at alina health orthopedics you'll get expert care backed by a whole health system of providers with convenient locations virtual options and an app that gives you 24 7 access to your records test results and care team you're always close to the care that you need schedule now at alinahealth.org slash ortho Back into the Sound of the Loons, presented by Alina Health Orthopedics. Now then, the Generation Adidas Cup is back, and it's bigger than ever before. The Elite Youth Tournament will have 80 professional academies from 10 countries across four continents. Some of these teams partaking in this tournament are the likes of Roma, River Plate, Celtic, Monterey, Flamengo, Manchester United, and our very own Minnesota United as well. Exciting times. Callum Williams alongside Kindred D. St. Aubin. And we thought we'd bring in expert youth soccer individual, uh, director of <laughs> youth development at Minnesota United, uh, Noel Quinn. Noel, thanks so much for joining us. Um, this is exciting times for Minnesota United. Yeah, 100%. It's uh, obviously getting towards now the GA Cup and we've been back in the spring season now for three or four weeks and we have to do a lot of travel over this initial part of the spring and then we get to play more home games coming up in May and that sort of thing. But it's uh, it's kind of part of being Minnesota United. You got to be good at traveling. You got to be good at being on the road. That's kind of where we live and kind of the environment in which we exist. You mentioned that kind of in the spring season now for three weeks. Does that does that seem like a lot or a little to you when you go to a tournament like this with this kind of a quality and this kind of a competition and how you're going to measure yourselves against this this group? Yeah, it's probably not enough competitive matches at this moment, but it gave us an opportunity to almost have a second preseason. So physically, the players should be quite ready. It's the competition moments that uh, we've probably not had enough of. I think uh, we've played four matches to this stage in this second part of the season. So it's it's not... Not maybe ideal, but it's also not an excuse for not being ready to play when you step in the GA Cup environment. No, for, for those unaware then, what exactly is the GA Cup? Yeah, so Generation Adidas Cup is probably the marquee event within MLS Next. I believe that previously it was set up as part of the Dallas Cup. Um, obviously, in association with MLS and Generation Adidas, then there's players on Generation Adidas contracts and those sort of things. Um 
it was a way to also bring in some of the top international clubs to the United States to play against, uh, obviously, our MLS opponents. Um, so when you think about it, it's really the marquee event in youth football in the United States. And that's probably accentuated by the fact that the top clubs in the world are coming over to play in it. And it probably also shows that the, the growth of the American youth soccer um, marketability, all those sort of things, is, is huge for even the big European clubs. Do you think there was something missing over the last couple of years without it? Yeah, I mean, like w- when you're talking about it's the equivalent of like having the Euros be cancelled and then rescheduled for a year later, it's like these things need to become yeah, habitual on the calendar. Mm. We need to be looking forward to GA Cup every single year and and um, it gives our players not only something to target, but then also just the, the whole environment of youth football at, at the MLS level. In the United States, we need these marquee events to, to ensure that we are on the calendar and we are known you know, effectively within the world. How much of a, a benefit, no, is it going to be to some of these young players? Because you are playing against Manchester United as well. That's in the schedule. That's in the calendar. <laughs> How much of a benefit is it going to be, though? It's going to be massive, surely. It's unbelievable. Like, I mean, we even thought about it the day we found out a little earlier than we were able to tell the players or whatever. But we, hmm. we know telling them they're going to play Manchester United. Like, I mean, we were laughing just as the adults. It was like, this Man United. I was like, how <laughs> can you not benefit from that? Yeah, I think, like... Constantly within this uh, Minnesota United MLS next level, it's about exposing the players to what that actual highest level looks like. That's not something that the players can naturally just feel stepping out of youth football or school football or whatever it is. I mean, how the game looks and feels at that next level is going to be the biggest barrier to them. Um, we can do whatever we want to train in and try to replicate, but you know yourself that in those big moments, the feel of the match, the feel of the expectations, the pressure of seeing some kid wearing a Manchester United shirt, those are real. And if we are trying to create a real experience that can create real professional footballers, the more um, of those things that you can do prepares our players then for the next level and obviously our coaches too because... It's still Man United over there. What was the reaction of, of the group of the players when you told them? Um, young lads are kind of funny, you know. It's like they're straight away like on Instagram trying to find kids that play in Man United, <laughs> like under-15 team or under-17 team. Um, and then they're, you know, is Ronaldo's kid going to play and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And like all youth groups, there's a lot of kids that follow Manchester United and, and a couple of our coaches are Man United guys. So it's more just like, wow, you get to play Man United. It's and then it clicks right away to, you're like, okay, let's be competitive. Let's try to win a football match against Man United. It's, um, so it's not like anything where we're all going to be like, oh, it's mm-hmm. like we're on vacation at the Old Trafford. It's, um, <laughs> it's a real football match and a real tournament. And how will the players react in the early moments? I don't know. Maybe they will want to stir at the badge for a little bit, but that's kind of when you play Man United. That happens everywhere. Uh, but the reaction of the players, excitement. But... Again, these other clubs that we play all the time, FC Dallas, uh, Sporting KC, it's not like they're minnows in any way. Yes, of course, Manchester United is one of the biggest football clubs in the world, but I think the boys just sort of took it in stride more like, yes, we're playing Man United, but we also got to play the crew and we also got to play Orlando and all those things. What sort of age group are we talking now? So both teams actually, uh, by chance, are under 15 team and are under 17 team. They're obviously in two separate draws in the tournament, but both got drawn against Man United. Whether it's a fluke or not, I don't know. Uh, maybe they had those like heated balls in the in the draw. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> but the um, 
Yeah, both teams are in a group with Manchester United. It could have played out differently, but it's kind of nice. But then when you look at the other international teams that are there, whether it's the Liga MX ones or the other big European teams, Porto, Celtic, um, Roma, whoever they are, I mean, to get to play against any of those teams would be great. And then hopefully if the teams do well and maybe advance out of the group or whatever, you do get another chance to play against a top team. When you look at the two age groups for you, the U15s and, and the 17s, how do you think that they've fared thus far since this was a thing, since these academy teams really took hold within Minnesota United? Yeah, so like when we look at our under-15 team, it's a very young group. It's actually their double-age bracket, so it's 14s and 15s, and a lot of our players in the under-15 group are uh, 2008s, which means they're technically under-14s. So to step up from being an under-14 to play against national or international level under-15s is a significant gap. Um, now, we obviously do have true under-15s, but th- that team is pretty heavy with younger guys who will get another full year next year of playing under-15 at their true age group. Um, so for those guys, some matches have been a struggle. Like the physical aspect of it is uh, the difference between a 13, 14-year-old and a big 15 is, is enormous. But that team um, has come along quite well from the start. They struggled with the level of competition early on, that the shock of stepping onto a football pitch at this national level was difficult for them. Um, And if we were to summarise what we're trying to do with that group is effectively get them used to the level of competition, the level of ferocity and intensity of these football matches, because that was, for them, young boys, a shock initially. Or maybe not a shock, but, you know, it was a surprise. But they've overcome that well, and they've had some really positive results. They beat Nashville. Um, they drew with Columbus Crew uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, they had a good game against the Red Bulls at, at the GA Cup qualifiers. So they're coming along well for a young group and a pretty raw group. Um, there's a, a few players in that group have a lot, of, a lot of potential. Well, according to MLSsoccer.com, the games will be streamed live on Twitch and on YouTube. So, no, for our fans that will be watching the teams, what, what kind of football should they expect? What kind of... Play should they expect from from both the U15s and U17s? Yeah, probably the biggest difference between the 15s and the 17s is that if the 15s is an introduction to the competition level, the under-17s are trying to play in a more specific style. Uh, Coach Ferguson, who works with the 17s teams, is a highly analytical coach. He's probably the best football guy I've been around, to be perfectly honest. And uh, the attention to detail and how they play the game is incredible, to be perfectly honest. Now, that team, the under-17s, haven't won as many games and have played the best opponents, they've played FC Dallas, they've played Austin, they played St. Louis City, who was a very strong under-17 team. They just played KC last week. And although the results haven't gone probably the way that they would like to, the style of football is so um, so expansive, but it's also, when you look at the individual moments or the individual players within that group, you're like, they're preparing them better for professional football than some of our other teams are. The under-15 team... Um, because of the, the physical differences at times or the maturity of just being a little younger. Um, you'll probably find a more pragmatic approach within that group where it's like, hey, we have to have certain ways that we can stay competitive against top teams. Um, so that team will probably play on a more defensive style, lower blocks, and, and try to limit the space that the other teams can play in because um, we need to have more bodies around the ball. You talk about Coach Ferguson being very analytical, and how have you seen sort of the development of that group and the cohesive nature? Is there a trickle-down effect with the the first team, and now we have MNUFC too, and how much do you guys share thoughts and ideas on how you want the game to be played, or is that not? I think that 
if we get caught up too much in having a soccer playing identity, then we're missing out on something that's really important, which is to have a club football identity. I, and I mean more about a club identity and like who we are and how we act. Um, you know, it's it's almost stage two of building a football club is like what the football part is going to look like. Right. Um, so it's the characteristics and the traits and maybe the values of the individuals who are involved, like incorporated within a football club that's most important right now. So when it comes to like working with the second team, we have, I think this morning, we had eight or nine guys training with the second team. We had four guys in the squad last Sunday. Um, Devin Padelford signed the first team contract and saw him this morning, I trained him with the first team. Those are the touch points and that's what's important. It's the, the point of an academy is not only to create a little bit of belonging in the community, but it's to assist the first team win football matches. And if that is ultimately you get many starters who come through an academy or a way that players can step into the first team environment and allow us to manage our roster differently. That's the point. And that's what a football club does. And so w when we talk about a club identity and how we work, I think that currently it's more important than the football identity part because that comes next. You correct me if I'm wrong here, pal, but over the years, it seems as though the likes of Sporting KC, FC Dallas, New York Red Bull from time to time as well have, have certainly produced more than most in terms of from the youth footballing side of it. How far do you think Minnesota United are away from, from emulating that? Well, I think it's a longer-term process, of course, but little small victories like getting one player like Pidelford signed into the first team or then those second-team players getting many opportunities. I think the best thing that's ever happened to the academy is the second team. The reality of stepping from youth football into an MLS world starting 11, that's a big step. We could do this for 30 years and maybe find one or two guys right. who would be able to do that so it's about um i look at the academy as being a, or a football club as being a set of placeholders for football players we talk a lot about producing players and developing players the reality of the world is about locating players it's like we don't turn somebody i don't know how good you are at football yourself but i imagine fairly average but <laughs> that, that's been very kind yeah <laughs> so we're not going to put you in an environment and develop you into a first team player it's not going to happen the guys who are already professional football players. They just need to be placed in an environment in which they can be supported and grown to become that. Um, so it's 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 about a pathway, but it's also about making sure that everything that we do in building the environment is about ultimately getting to the task, which is win a match in MLS. Um, and so um, when it comes to... The, the situation within youth building towards the second team, we have to be constantly stretching the players to to see what their true capability is um, while focusing, I think, on the environment in which they're, they're growing up in. I remember you very distinctly early on in one of our calls saying that it's you said locating there. How, how do you find the talent pool that is in Minnesota that's maybe a little far reaching and not just part of the existing clubs that we already have in this metro area? Yeah, yeah. So Tap into it. Um, most of our players are pretty local, like within the Twin Cities area. Um, we have several players from Iowa. We have a few players from greater Minnesota. It's really about trying to get your tentacles out into as many possible places. I think one of the problems, weaknesses with youth football in maybe in the country and in this area is that there's a lot of players who are missed out from the traditional avenues. Um, we have a few players, more than a few players, who we found in non-traditional soccer communities or non-traditional avenues, whether it's through 
guys who played in a park or guys who played in minority ethnic leagues or whatever it is. I mean, when it comes to football, it's like we got to go to the places where players are at and then meet them there. Um, there has to be an expansion within Minnesota United. Like, if we are happy with the level of players ever, I think we're not doing our job properly. It's incrementally getting better all the time. It's like finding a better player in a position, finding more better players. And that means, yes, locally, absolutely saturating that and making sure that every single player in this metro area or in this state has an act, has an opportunity to play here if they're talented enough and committed enough and all those things. But we can't be like London maybe where, oh, I missed a player and there's another one around the corner. That might not be true here. And until we turn over every rock, until we actually saturate and fully understand what is available here, I think we're doing a disservice to, to ourselves in Minnesota United. And then we can go expand. Then we can go regionally. Then we can go into Wisconsin and Iowa more and maybe some of the Dakotas. And then we can go nationally or internationally. But I think that long term in our football club, if we have local players in the local team, like if you'd think about Manchester United or FC Bayern or the top teams, I mean, they have local guys in the team. It's like it tends to be like a little bit of a thread that runs through it. We need to have Minnesota guys here. Mm. I think that's hugely important. I obviously not from Minnesota, but I've lived here about 20 years. My wife's from here. The kids gr are growing up here. It's like Minnesota people like Minnesota people. It's kind of <laughs> the way we are here. Uh, we want our own and who doesn't? Like, of course we do. And if those kids are like, maybe they don't have to be Minnesotans, but they have to display the attributes that we want to see in football players as or in people as Minnesotans. Like, isn't that kind of what football is? You mentioned as many as eight youth players training with the first team, with the second team rather, mm -hmm. today. Having a second team provides a pathway. Does that not also provide a bit of pressure for someone like yourself to develop these youth players? And, and how much pressure do you feel under at the moment, given the fact that there's now actually an avenue to the first team? Yeah. I mean, regardless in these jobs, there's pressure for sure. something, right? It's, it's uh, why do you sit in my seat if you can't, do it or you can't feel that you can do it and then be able to prove that you can do it. So yes, there's absolutely pressure there. There's pressure every day. There's pressure that we talked about to our players all the time. It's like, yeah, you play for Minnesota United. The whole community wants to see what the score in the match is. It's like, it's real. And that is a little different for the players and a little different for some of our guys, but it's also normal. It, it has to be normal. We have to accept that leadership. It's like, we have the little star on our bodies. That's a beacon, right? That's, leadership that's inspiration like we have to be prepared to put our head above the the level and have people take shots at us that's normal yep. and if that's internally pressure good we should have that we should want to have players who go into the second team we should w want to have players who go into the first team and we believe that there are plenty of opportunities over the next few years to grow into that and to have a consistent pipeline of players that at least can go into the second team. What about the the concept of homegrowns? And I know we're talking now about MLS at a first team level, but we've seen now with the amount of players that can go and become a homegrown for somewhere else that it's not it's not like you have to be from the state of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. and people outside soccer might not fully comprehend that. How do you get people and players to want to be here as opposed to somewhere else in some of these other clubs yeah. that have these well-developed long-standing academies. Yeah, so in MLS is slightly different uh, to European football where, say, the big clubs like Man United, we keep talking about Man United, this is Man United <laughs> podcast, we th let's talk about a real big club like Glasgow Celtic, right? So <laughs> it's, um, 
So like Glasgow Celtic can go anywhere in the world they want for football players and they can take them in or whatever. And then you have teams like FC Bayern who can go anywhere they want in the world but decide to stay more local until a certain age group. They want Bavarians and Germans through it so that they can create that. Um, within MLS, um, there are certain markets in which players, like we, we can't go to New York City and take a load of players out of there. That's not how it works. That's like rules of the league. But there are then open markets or there are uh, geographical territories that are effectively under the control of the MLS team um, in which we can get players. So in if it's the case of we're taking a player from uh, market X, but they have an MLS team, it's not a fair fight because we don't just go, hey, come to Minnesota and we're better than, than Club X. That's not how it works. It's a, we have to be uh, a bit more strategic about where we look for the players. But then in terms of inviting players into an academy, it's location of top-level players, and then it's location of top-level people, and it's people who can fit the characteristics and the values of what we want as a football club. And then it's convincing them, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's it's educating them on why this is a great pathway. And, you know, things like a second team guys signing for the first team when you get to this upper echelon of players that's what they're looking for they're like what is my avenue to become a professional football player because if one is blocked and another one is open why wouldn't you go to the open one i just listened to shay given was on a podcast there recently say ferry and uh he was talking about he had a chance when he came on over from ireland he had a chance to play for celtic or manchester united and effectively he chose Celtic because he actually was in the group with Stuart Kerr and uh, I think Stuart was like the third keeper and given the fourth and but a couple of keepers maybe a bit older or whatever it was and they were like you have a far better chance of playing in the first team at Celtic than you do at Manchester United and he didn't really play for Celtic much but ended up winning the league at Blackburn Rovers or somewhere. How often are you talking to the first team coaches then and how often are they communicating with you and your staff to have a look at some of the youth players? Yeah, we have a pretty like uh, consistent pipe. You know, it's a way to chat about it. Now, as the second teams come in, it's far more with Cameron within the second team right. because that is obviously the stepping stone to go on. It's like, again, very rarely there's going to be a lad that's going to skip from under-17s or under nineteen straight into the first team. It's not going to happen that much. They're going to go into the second team, train and develop there, and then probably step on based on performances and matches and training. So, like, dealing with Cameron like every single day about who's coming in the next day for training or one guy drops out and another guy comes in. There's some of our younger players are in school, and we have to work with the school to get them off school if they're being invited in the second team training. We have one under 15 who goes, uh, two lads who are under 18s, but they don't go every day because they're, they have school responsibilities, which is very important, of course. Um, but they're still keeping an eye on them, keep tracking them, and then work with Amos and Mark Watson quite a lot and effectively determining these are the players that you need to be keeping your eye on, whether they're 12 or 13 or 19 or whatever it is. Um, obviously a 19 year old is more physically capable of stepping into that environment and it's a good reason why we have a 19s team but then there are 12 and 13 year olds who are like mm, you might have a chance you've been in soccer and soccer in minnesota specifically for a long time what's the most surprising thing since you've taken on this new role about this role compared to others that you've had it and maybe the most exciting positive thing that, that most exciting part about it is that the football environment feels very real to me and it feels like, and whether that comes with pressure or whether that comes with a lot of eyeballs or whether that comes with um, the level of the football matches, 
I mean, it's really challenging. I mean, it's not like we can't prepare properly for a football match and then expect it to go well. It's a, it's about not only um, the football moments and then the match moments. It's also about like constantly making sure that the players are prepared for for the competition moment that's coming up. Because if we're off at all, then it becomes very, very difficult for us. Um, the difference is, I mean, you work in football, you got to like football, <laughs> right? I mean, last week we were getting beat 3 uh, 0 by Columbus Crew after about 25 minutes. So we just had a bit of a disaster on the 19s. And then we drew 3 3 and scored a goal in the last minute that was disallowed. I mean, that's exciting. Mm. <laughs> you come back 3 0 down, score three goals in the last 30 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I actually should have won the game. Of course, like every coach, a referee robbed us, you know. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, uh, but that was, I mean, that's exciting. Uh, like, probably the most exciting moment or most rewarding moment was we played under Miami at under-17s in GA Cup qualifiers. And under Miami is legitimately good. I mean, I think they have a couple of good lads who signed first-team contracts and, and they were, I thought they were good. And our team is, is learning and getting better, but it's hard for them. And they're playing against top-class opposition and they scored... And it was kind of one of those matches where the other team probably should have won and they missed a few chances and the way it goes. Our guys dug in really well. We scored early and hung, hang on for a wee bit and then they score and then uh, Inter Miami scored with about 10 minutes to go and it kind of a bit disappointing. And then we scored in the last minute. Mm-hmm. Like they equalised 2-2 against a really good opponent. Yeah, your man Brian McBride was there watching for US soccer and he was kind of like, he enjoyed just the environment around our football team. And that was a good moment for, for all of us because that team has had difficult moments, but that was such a, such a good moment for them that although we didn't win the game, like a 2-2 draw felt like a win. Just a couple more um, before we ask you about the, the first team and then end things here on the Sound of the Loons. Go on, you've, you've got to give us then some, some names then. Who, who can we watch for over the next couple of years then? That's a bit of pressure on a young lad, isn't it? <laughs> um, and everybody's like, who's he, who's he? Um, Pressing environment, mate. Are you saying yeah, it's real? That's right. <laughs> um, I think if you look at our under-19 team, there's a, there's a couple of lads that are in the second team. Davy Garcia sticks out on man. Tommy Kneiser, who's like an under-18, who's training a lot. Under-17 team, uh, Tamar Ibsius and uh, Christopher Fang are strong players. And then at the under-15 level, we have Elisa Randall and Brian Espadero who have had a few national team sort of looks. Um, there's you know, there's a lot of decent players there and a couple of lads that obviously are quite strong. But the youngest players who are really good, they got to develop and they got to understand the game moments a bit better. And they got to perform more consistently at the highest level. And then for some of the 18s and 19s, for instance, their time runs out pretty quickly, right? I mean, it's like they don't have five years to get better. It's like it's got to happen now. Mm. And so the access to the second team, those little first-team opportunities, you get the scrimmage matches, then the MLS next under 19. You know, we think it's good preparation for them, but uh, they're going to have to be right place, right time a little bit to, to get where they're going. One player that you have cast your eye upon over the last couple of years, you mentioned earlier on, is Devon Padelford. With the first team now, which is wonderful, it's the path we all want to see for many of the players you just mentioned. You've seen him a lot more than most. How good can Padelford be and, and what are the first team really getting in a player like him? Yeah, I think the good thing about Padelford is he took to what we were trying to do pretty quickly. And we talk about being adaptable or versatile quite a lot, talk about being dependable, talking about being a leader, talk about working in groups. And one of the first things that when we dealt with Padelford was he was like, I play up front or I play outside left or whatever position he played. And right away we said, you're not going to play in the MLS as a centre forward. It's just not going to happen for you, but you 
can play left back and he straight away he was like yeah I'll do it and so he never played left back before in his life and then he stepped up to a higher level you know we, we asked him to play left back he played left back really well if you think about the attributes of a, a Pedelford he's good at running with the ball it's like back when maybe I played football or watched football or like what I thought about you know a winger is a person who runs at people with the ball but the way we play, the way modern football is, fullbacks run at people with the ball, so it suits his attributes more. He's a good crosser of a ball. He's actually, uh, I was watching the second team the other day, and Pedelford's like hanging out the halfway line on the corners. I'm like, you get him in the box on corners, he can jump over the crossbar. He played basketball or something at Woodbury. You know, the boys used to laugh, he can dunk it. Not like, I mean, <laughs> he's incredible at jumping. Um, he's a good header of a ball. Um, but probably the biggest thing about Pedelford is work ethic, and then that adaptability stuff where he's just like, yeah, I'll just get on with my job. It would show a, a level of maturity that some other players who have come in here, they were like, no, no, I can only play centre forward and then they're not here anymore because they're not walking into an MLS team as a centre forward at their level. But maybe they could play a different position. The other part about Pedelford, you know, he's tough. Like, I mean, he is. He's like Bell Steel. And we went to play FC Dallas in the GA Cup qualifiers or whatever, 19s. FC Dallas is obviously big time in the academy world. So it was a big game for us. And then the day before, like four of the guys get food poisoning, the hotel, you know, it's just a mess. Um, wouldn't even like to describe what the hotel was like. But <laughs> it was, uh, it was like in a Celtic away match. That's what it was like. But they, um, <laughs> the, the, um, but we lost five or six players because of the food poisoning. So we had 11 outfield players to play Dallas. And Fred was playing keeper, which was obviously a great help too. And, uh, Pedelford, the boys were texting me from a hotel. He's like, these guys aren't playing for sure, no way. And then I was like building the team. We had already a team built, and then we got to build it again at the last moment. And then Pedelford just showed up, and I was like, are you playing? And he goes, well, I didn't come all the way here not to play. Right. And he said, I got about 20%. And he was good. He wasn't himself, but he was good enough. And we won the match. And that's kind of those little things sum him up more than, than anything. He's very much like a Minnesota guy. <laughs> He's just like, no nonsense. He's sort of just like, you ask him to do stuff, he gets it done, and then he'll do more. Guys like those, we have to be a little careful that we don't work them into the ground because Pedelfo will run until he drops dead. The GA Cup will, of course, be available on YouTube and on Twitch from April 9th to the 17th. Minnesota United up against some of the world's best. Before we end the podcast, then, we always ask our guests uh, about the first team and how things are going at the moment. And obviously, disappointing against the Sounders this past weekend, but what do you think, using your footballing IQ, what do you think we should expect to see against Austin FC this coming weekend? I mean, you look at the first four matches, was pretty good, right? You win two, draw two, uh, that's like really high levels of achievement within MLS. You're getting eight points in four matches is, is a big deal. Um, Sanders are the Sanders. I mean, it's an established football club. They're dangerous every time you play them. I was looking at some of the fixtures, like in the heads to head going back. It's like, they're hard to beat. It's like, even at home, they're well established. So I actually no shame in that. Like, could we have got a draw at the end? We probably could have. Right. Um, and that would have been a good result. But when you play the Sanders, you can toss a coin and see what happens. Austin coming up, obviously, Austin is, is this their second year in the league? It's a very good football place. They have a nice stadium. Uh, I went to the last look, they were somewhere towards the top of the league or they were at the top of the league. Um, obviously, the coach there had worked with Greg Bergholder at, at the crew. They have a pretty specific style of play, um, but they're also quite adaptable. It's a tough match coming up. And when you look ahead to the next three or four fixtures, no easy ones. And uh, so it's, it's going to be a tough month for us. Um, but 
it's just kind of where you get to know what you're all about and prepare for playoffs and all those sort of things. So at difficult moments, we've always done quite well. And uh, I think there's a few difficult moments coming up over the next three weeks, but sure, that's what the game's all about. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you played the game. <laughs> yeah, try to. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, look, Noel, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Our, our special thanks to Noel Quinn joining us on this iteration of The Sound of the Loons. As always, big thanks to Kindred East St. Aubin, our expert button presser, uh, Andrea Correa as well, and to you for listening at home as well. Minnesota United's first team underway this weekend, uh, away to Austin FC. Uh, and don't forget, you can watch the GA Cup over the next couple of weeks as well on Twitch and on YouTube from all of us here. See you soon.